1: As many as one in six people with Parkinson's disease taking a dopamine agonist drug may develop an impulse control disorder during the course of their disease. Examples are compulsive shopping, eating, gambling, sexual activity, or involvement in hobbies. These repetitive behaviors, often seemingly without purpose, can interfere with the person's life causing social, emotional, economic, health, and family issues. Two keys to avoiding these outcomes are prompt recognition of the impulsive behaviors and effective communication about them, often by the care partner or other family members. I spoke with neuropsychiatrist Dr. Greg Pontone of Johns Hopkins University about impulse control disorders, how they may be recognized, and ways to bring them up with the person and the neurologist. He first described how the consequences of these behaviors distinguish them from normal behaviors.
2: Impulse control disorders, sort of plainly stated, are behaviors, and they can be almost any behavior in the normal repertoire of behaviors, performed to an extent or a frequency which causes distress or problems in their day-to-day life. What are some examples? The most common examples in Parkinson's disease are pathological gambling, hypersexuality, binge eating. Oftentimes, this goes along with sort of compulsive shopping, both on the internet and in person.
1: When these occur or are suspected, what's the role of the family or care partner in recognizing them and dealing with them?
2: I would say that it's equally recognized, maybe even slightly more often, by the family or a caregiver because the patient may either be embarrassed or rationalize the extent of the behavior or you know, lack insight about how disruptive the behavior is. For instance, sometimes pathological gambling won't be recognized until there's a shortfall in an account.
1: Aha, uh-huh. that's pretty serious.
2: Yeah, sometimes we've had cases where they've dipped into retirement savings, or college savings for children. It can really be destructive and damage trust within a family. Hypersexuality can be a bit more conspicuous. Sometimes you will have a person who just has an increased frequency but other times there'll be a change in the repertoire of behaviors so people may have had one sexual preference for most of their life and all of a sudden they want all sort of alternative sexual behaviors either from you know a spouse Or partner or they're seeking sexual gratification outside of their normal relationship their normal intimate relationship and again we've seen pretty much a range of behaviors all the way up to very risky and illegal behaviors in that regard Binge eating can be a little more difficult because, you know, at first you might just think someone had a midnight snack and then when you notice the amount of food consumed and the way it's consumed, often the patients will tell us it's conspicuous because they don't necessarily feel hungry. So oftentimes we'll screen for it by asking, are you eating for reasons other than hunger? And so, you know, sometimes people will describe eating in a way where they feel compelled to take mouthful after mouthful. Compulsive shopping, with the internet, it's easy to shop even from home. And so that one can be tricky, but I'll give you an example. We had a gentleman who had a two bedroom condominium and he purchased 15 art deco lamps and so again it's usually the amount disproportionate amount of things purchased or you know a lack of clear rationale for what is purchased
1: it seems some of these behaviors can be fairly obvious, seeing a bunch of new lamps in a room or that someone has maybe a binge eating disorder. But I would assume some of them are more secretive. People may be embarrassed about them. I mean, they could go off and gamble. They can go online and gamble the hypersexuality. They could be going outside the home. So what should people, especially care partners, be on the lookout for?
2: Yeah, that's a great point. The extent and frequency especially in the face of consequences. When someone is experiencing consequences such as, you know, bankruptcy or whatnot, and the behavior continues, that's a clear signal. But, you know, it's very likely that there's a fair amount of these impulse control behaviors that go unrecognized either because the family or the patient can absorb them either financially or in other ways, or they're just under the radar because the patient is able to conceal them. What we generally tell people is if that if there's any substantial change in behavior that's causing distress or problems, that it should be discussed with the neurologist or the doctors helping to take care of the Parkinsons. And, you know, it's one of those things where I think it's important to educate both the patient and their caregiver because like I said, there's various reasons that it goes unrecognized because often You know, these will just be an extrapolation of an existing behavior. So for instance, if you have a patient who's been playing the lottery their whole life, and all of a sudden now, instead of buying two tickets a week, they're buying 25 or 200 could be that type of a change. And so making that link between Parkinson's and certain Parkinson's medications with the caregiver and patient, I think is the crucial link. Because even when they are recognized, sometimes people fail to associate these with Parkinson's or Parkinson's disease treatments, and they don't know where to go for help.
1: How does one approach the person who's exhibiting these behaviors, especially a family or care partner? Are there tools or techniques to approach them without causing animosity?
2: Yeah, that's tricky. So with many of these behaviors, there's embarrassment, or in the case of hypersexuality, there can be Privacy issue or a concern for privacy, or even deviance for some of the behaviors that we've seen. And so, what we generally recommend is just having a very clinical, open discussion. You know, we'll usually start with the patient and then we'll invite the family member or care partner into the room and we'll continue the discussion and then sometimes we'll ask permission to interview the care partner, spouse, or family member separately and then piece it together that way. But in all situations, we ultimately try to bring the conversation back to the entire group so that individuals don't feel as if they're breaking alliances within their family or within their partnership.
1: Is it reasonable to approach the person exhibiting the behaviors to say, listen, you know, these can be associated with medication. This is not a character flaw, a personality sort of thing, but it's something that's really a side effect.
2: Absolutely. So that's probably one of the most important messages is that once we recognize one of these behaviors, we try to make the association with the disease and the medications and sort of let the person know, especially if it's a new behavior, that this isn't something where they've fallen down or should be embarrassed about. And I think that helps undo some of the stigma and one of the barriers to seeking care is to sort of normalize it in the context of the ongoing medical therapy.
1: How important is the family or care partner in communicating what they see to the healthcare team? I would say
2: crucial in the majority of cases. There's a- Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
0: We take this few seconds off to inform you our valued loyal listener about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the Nespod Studios Enjoy the show.
2: The fairly substantial literature in Parkinson's disease of the care partner, or family member recognizing the impulse control disorder before the patient or even if the patient recognizes it, the care partner being the one that sort of comes to the clinician because the patient either, you know, is too embarrassed or lacks insight into the severity of the problem. And so, you know, I think we've always operated using the model where we involve at least the main caregiver or a partner in the home.
1: How are impulse control disorders different from bipolar disorder mania or hypomania, where you know shopping may be a sign of that too? Distinction between impulse control disorders
2: and bipolar mania or bipolar hypomania of real interest, I think, right now, because it may be on the same spectrum of behavioral disorder. Uh, for instance, it could be that these are just a component process within mania. So, you know, mania is usually this hyper excited state with minimal sleep, lability of mood, in addition to some impulse control disorders, whereas impulse control doesn't necessarily have those other components. But what we have definitely seen is that in people who have either a recognized bipolar disorder, in addition to Parkinson's, or an unrecognized bipolar disorder, we've seen dopamine agonist and levodopa to some extent trigger manic and hypomanic episodes in these individuals and so the question of whether it's a part of that same spectrum is a i think a valid one i think the difference between the two is that mania and hypomania include many more symptoms and behavioral changes like i said the reduction in sleep and the severe mood change
1: Are there other behaviors that are not necessarily impulse control disorder, but might be tip-offs to something going on that people in contact with the person with Parkinson's should recognize? I mean, these might be sort of behavioral biomarkers, even though they're not the thing itself.
2: Yes, absolutely. So one of the things, especially when people might be using a bit more of the medication than they're actually prescribed, but not necessarily, are things like punding, which is sort of a repetitive, semi-purposeful behavior done over and over again. So uh, one example would be reordering the kitchen again and again and again without clear purpose of why you're moving things around. We've had punding that included just writing a series of random numbers to fill a page. Again, that type of repetitive behavior, it can even be more sophisticated like performing parts of a typical hobby again and again Competitively in a very driven way. So that punding and hobbyism are two things that we'll often see in conjunction with people who have impulse control disorders. And then again, to the extent that Impulse control might track with higher levels of dopamine. We've also seen it occur along with a dyskinesia, you know, a peak dose dyskinesia, that sort of form hyperkinetic movement we see as a complication of Parkinson's therapy. To some extent, we've seen it associated, again, with mood lability, so people who might have some pressured speech and be just a little bit high emotionally, and that can be high in terms of a little grandiose and overly excitable, all the way to irritability and brittleness of mood.
1: What's the prevalence over the course of a disease that impulse control disorders would occur?
2: Right now, the best evidence is probably from a meta-analysis, which is a collection of several studies all boiled down together for one conclusion. And that estimate gives us right around 14%, I think the official estimate was 13.6% of people with Parkinson's who are treated with dopaminergic therapy, most often dopamine agonists, will have an impulse control disorder at any given time. And it could be that up to 4 or 5% will have more than one impulse control disorder at the same time.
1: Does it matter how long the impulse control disorder has existed, for a good outcome, or stage of the disease, or what predicts a successful outcome.
2: That's tricky. And there isn't a whole lot of literature or evidence to support what I'm about to say. This is uh, more anecdotal. But, you know, there's different types of impulse control disorders that we talked about, you know, the pathological gambling, the hypersexuality, binge eating and compulsive shopping. So the way that I think about what predicts success is how biologically or intrinsically reinforced the behavior is, more so than when it started or the duration. I mean, all those are probably important to some extent, but let me give you the example. So pathological gambling, once it starts, let's say it was triggered by Parkinson's and a dopamine agonist, but now that it started, it's self-reinforcing. And we found that Pathological gambling is probably trickier to treat and resolve than some of the others. Hypersexuality seems to be more biologically driven, and oftentimes when we reduce or stop the dopamine agonist, for instance, that seems to cool off more quickly because it's more directly potentially motivated by the dopamine than by the self-perpetuating and reinforcing nature of the behavior itself. So again, I think we need to do more research to understand what predicts a better course of any behavior. Uh, The longer you do it, the more it's habituated, you know, the more chances for it to be reinforced. So I think in general, it'll turn out that duration is important. We haven't demonstrated that necessarily conclusively in the literature, but I think the sooner you can recognize them and stop them, the better in general
1: your outcomes are going to be. Have we missed anything important or interesting to add?
2: No, I think you covered all the main ones. Your sort of point about how important is the family and caregiver, I can't tell you how many times the patient's done it for five years before it comes to light from a concerned caregiver
1: they just were waiting for it to pass, I guess. I don't know.
2: Yeah. Or, you know, sort of rationalizing it. I can give you a common scenario that's actually come up a number of times in the instance of gambling. So people will say, look, they got diagnosed with Parkinson's and, you know, let him have his fun. And then, you know, as gambling expenditures mount and mount and mount, they keep saying, he can't do this. He can't do that anymore. So at least he can have some fun gambling. And they sort of rationalize it. And it really can get out of hand that way, even in full daylight, you know, when the caregiver, of our family members aware of it. This really is a unique sort of disorder.
1: Very good. I appreciate it. Great information. Thank you.
2: This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you. This will conclude the episode. Thanks
0: for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you.